This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. I am here with Bart Campolo, and I'm going to let him give you an introduction. Well, thank you, Hemant. Um, I am Bart Campolo. I'm the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. And gosh, starting next year, it turns out I will also be the humanist chaplain at UCLA. So I guess uh, I am the humanist chaplain of Los Angeles. Is that a done deal now? Yeah, yeah. I'm working with some students there, and, and we're, we're creating an, a secular student fellowship there that's going to be a lot of fun. That's awesome. And we'll talk about the chaplaincy in just a second. Um, but first of all, let's just get this out of the way. Um, if people are familiar with your name, if they've heard Campolo before, it's probably in connection with Christianity. So why is that? <laughs> well, that's because I spent 30, more than 30 years as an evangelical Christian leader. Um, I, I was an inner, inner city missionary and I recruited young people to come and live and work among the poor. And in that context, I became like a platform speaker, a guy who spoke at big conferences, youth events with 10,000 people. And so a lot of people know me that way, but even more so people know me because although I was a prominent Christian leader, my dad is like evangelical Christian royalty. <laughs> uh, my dad's a guy named Tony Campolo and he has spoken everywhere. He's written dozens of books. When President Clinton got in trouble with Monica Lewinsky, my dad was the minister who was summoned to the White House to counsel <laughs> him and work him through that problem. It, you know, my dad's a big deal in that world. And he's probably the most entertaining speaker that you will ever hear. So I'm sure one of the questions people want to know is, okay, how does that work since you're now openly atheist but your dad's still evangelical royalty. Do you get along? Have you talked about this? Are you estranged from him? Well, I mean, it's interesting. First of all, I would, I, you're the first person that's ever described me as openly atheist because unlike you, Hemant, I never use the you word never atheist. Use that. No, because it def, it, I, I would never want to define myself by what I don't believe in. It's all about what I'm. It's all about what I'm committed to, what my values are. So I, that's. I mean, humanist isn't that much better of a word. It doesn't like it has all sorts of bad associations of its own, but uh, it, it's what I'm going with for the time being. But I will tell you that, like when I made my transition, when I finally, and by the way, my Christian orthodoxy didn't die in a moment. It was like the death of a thousand cuts over over thirty years. It's a little bit over time. And I, I mean, I and, and the thing is, is that it wasn't a big shock to my dad, my parents, anybody when I finally said I'm done with this because. I had been sh moving for so long, and I had been really open about that. I, I, you know, my dad sort of says, yeah, you passed through every stage of heresy on your way to <laughs> apostasy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was, out with, I was out doing gay marriages 15 years ago. You know, like I was, like I, I'm in, you know, and so um, I was a universalist. I believed everybody was getting into heaven. You know, like then I turned down the supernatural, and I was sort of like, God can 
can guide you, but he's not going to actually act in the world. Like, you know, I, I, I was very much moving. You were moving on that spectrum toward hell. Yeah. And I, <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, well, gosh, <laughs> I, I hadn't heard it put that way. Um, but, we're an uplifting show at this one. But in the end, when I finally, about five years ago, came to the place where, you know, my wife and I are looking at each other going like, there's nothing left of our supernaturalism. And she said, you know, I think you should probably stop being a professional Christian. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, okay, if you're moving down the spectrum, though, and you're getting further and further away from, like, Orthodox Christianity, right. at what point, uh, how close are you to not believing in God and kind of saying that openly, and still, what are you doing as a Christian at this point? Well, for, for many years, I, was a, I, I ran a big nonprofit organization called Mission Year that recruits young people to work, live and work among the poor. Mission Year? Mission Year, yeah. And it still exists, and it's still a lovely program. Like a one-year mission. Exactly. It's like, it almost like an AmeriCorps program. Yeah. I mean, we'd have seven young people living in a house in the middle of an inner-city neighborhood, building relationships with their neighbors, and volunteering at local public schools and hospitals and things like that. It was, it's a very cool program. Um, but... But about 10 years ago, I realized I had gotten so good at talking about loving poor people and at raising money to love poor people and at training young people to love poor people that I actually didn't know any poor people anymore. And um, I kind of had a mid, my, the first of many midlife <laughs> crises where I was like, wow, I, I'm so divorced from where I started. I was a, I was a street worker. I was, a, I was the guy who was with the kids. I was, I was in the neighborhood. I was on the street. And all of a sudden... You I went from like, being the community organizer to the guy who's just managing from a distance? I was a nonprofit executive yeah. flying around giving talks. And uh, I got really discouraged by that. And my wife and kids said, look, you want to go back and live in the ghetto with poor people? We're down with that. <laughs> but we need to do it in the context of a community. And so I, we ended up... I left my job. And we moved to Cincinnati, where we lived in an intentional community with three other families, right, right next door to each other, in a really rough neighborhood of Cincinnati called Walnut Hills. And everybody had a regular job, but we loved our neighbors as a hobby. Like, that was our collective effort. And, uh, and, and so for those years, I made my living as a, as a speaker. I would just go around giving talks and, you know, in the Christian world. That's get, pretty lucrative. You, you can get paid for yeah. that. I mean, and I, you know, I mean, you're not going to get make a lot of money being a ghetto minister, but like, I was able to make it work, right? Um, and so, but and so, the number of places I could speak as I became more edgy and more radical, certain people were like, "We want more of that guy," and other people were like, "We want way less of that mm-hmm. guy." But eventually, it got to the place where I, I just, my wife and I realized that we didn't feel comfortable being identified that way. Like there was nothing left. And, and there are a lot of, there's a whole movement of pro, uh, called progressive Christianity of people who are sort of like, yeah, we don't actually believe any of the supernatural stuff, but we like this language. And so, you know, God is a metaphor for the universe. Jesus, you know, what we really mean by that is the possibility of redemption. And I mean, and I have friends like my, my friend, Jim Burklow runs this thing called progressivechristianity.org. And it is it's all about that. And these are people, I don't think they'll be around 50 years from now. But what Progressive they are, Christians? I don't think they will be. I think what's ha- what they are is transitional. They're all these people that grew up in church and love the language and love the music and love the liturgy and don't believe in God anymore in, in, in any kind of like discernible way, supernatural way. But they, they, they can't let go. Their children, however, let go. 
So you think uh, right now we're seeing kind of an emergent Christianity, a lot very progressive type of Christianity. Are you saying like, yeah, in a couple decades, maybe a generation or two, those kids will probably be in the nuns category. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I know people who that is their personal story. They spent, in fact, a woman came up to me just the other day and said, I was a big fan of you and your father's and I listened to all your stuff. Actually, it was one of your father's books that got me started on the road to giving up my faith. And what, <laughs> really? What it, yeah, what it was is she had been a very, very fundamentalist person. Like Bible is this, you know, it is absolutely, you know, factually true and all this stuff. And she read a book of my father's that sort of gave her, oh, there's a different way of looking at it. And once you shift a little bit, you go like, well, well what about this? Well, that doesn't make sense. Well, I shift. And, and so, you know, the first stuff, domino has fallen. It really is. I mean, you know, like, you know, you go like, well, the Bible's wrong about like divorce. Like for a while, Christians were like, if you're divorced, you're out. But then they like realized there were so many people that were divorced. So then they like, alter their view. The, the verses haven't changed, right? but the way they interpret them does. Now, we're in the process of seeing that happen about homosexuality right now and gay marriage. And what happens is, is that a person goes like, I, I think they were wrong about gay marriage. Wait, maybe they're wrong about other things too. And Do you so, think in 20 years, most of these churches, even the conservative ones are going to be like, yeah, no, that wasn't real. We were just wrong about that. We, it, they won't even say they were wrong. Well, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I mean, there's <laughs> a lot more scriptural support for slavery. Right. And during slavery, there were lots of people who made great Christian arguments for, for great slavery. biblical arguments for slavery. And, and ultimately now people look back and go like, they were wrong, mm -hmm. but they were sincere. I mean, they were, it was from the Bible and, you know, there were people like, I don't want to be for slavery, but like, I have to be same way with getting rid of divorce people. Like, that there's, there was a great argument for that. There's a great biblical argument against gay marriage. It's just that when everybody starts to love gay people and have friends that are gay, when the love part of Christianity takes you into relationship with people, then the judgment part of Christianity really struggles. And so, yeah, the church changes its mind all the time. And, uh, but, but you see, like, that, when you're in a very supernatural mindset and you totally believe in a God and a personal God who speaks to you, that's not as big a problem. When you get in this progressive Christianity, these are people that have the same problems with supernaturalism that you have or I have, but they, but they're wrapped up in these communities and, 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 and the, the, they have jobs. They're the minister of the Lutheran church and things like that. And so what they do is they become ultra liberal Christians mm -hmm. and progressive Christians. And so, yeah. So I, and we've seen some of this with the clergy project and pastors who are still in the pulpit who say, I don't think I believe the stuff I'm preaching. Right. And, and in a I need a way out, but where are they going to go? And in a progressive Christian church, you can get away with that. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a whole kind of Christianity where they don't care if you believe in God. It's almost like Jewish rabbis who don't believe in God. Like, it's not a problem. But in the mainstream of evangelical Christianity, the kind of Christianity that I was associated with, if you don't believe in God, you don't really belong in the club anymore. Belief is the center of the whole thing. I'm really curious because I think uh, there have been some prominent pastors. Uh, I heard rumor, I don't know if this is true, that Rick Warren's son, who committed suicide... Uh, like a year or two ago, there was a rumor that he was gay. And maybe that's true. I don't know if it's not. But the, the thing, the reason I bring that up is just, uh, I heard a lot of talk online about people saying, because of what his father preached, and because of the prominence, maybe that kid had a hard time being gay. And maybe it was never acknowledged in the way it might another family. And the only reason I bring that up, I, I know there are probably a lot of 
Christian ministers out there who have kids who are gay, even though their parents preach against it. And the pastors don't want people to know that their kids are gay. And I wonder if that ever uh, strained your relationship at all with your father, where your father's like, yeah, I love you. You're, you have your own road to follow with however you want to interpret your beliefs, but it's going to hurt me too. And everything I'm trying to do with my uh, ministry. Well, I mean, the first thing I'll say to you is like, when it comes to somebody like Rick Warren and his son, like as a parent, one of the things that I know is, is that there's so much going on in every kid's life, in everybody's life that like, you never want to, you never want to speculate. Why something, why something like that happened. It's just, it's just, it's, it's, you you just don't have enough information to judge. Sure. And, And probably Rick Warren doesn't have enough information to judge. It's very difficult to know why people do what they do. And so in my own life with my own dad, when I came out secular and I told my dad, one of his first reactions was, A, first of all, I'm not worried about you going to hell. What kind of God I believe in doesn't send people to hell for, believing, for, for not believing in him. Like, I'm not worried about that. What I'm really concerned about is, like, what are you going to do now? Because your whole life has been in the ministry. Yeah, that was what his real concern was. And when I told him, hey, I'm still committed to building community. I'm still committed to ministering to young people and to trying to show them how to live a better life built around loving relationships and meaningful work. Hey, I want, you know, and I started to describe to him the kind of community work I wanted to do on college campuses. He said, oh, he got all relieved. He's like, oh, (laughs) you're still you. Yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm totally supportive. There's all these people outside who don't believe in God. I'm so, I would so much rather have them be in a fellowship like the one you're running than to be out there alone. He said, now the, now the one thing is, I, I won't lie to you. He said, I'm, I'm really disappointed. He said, it's embarrassing to me because I liked having you in my tribe and I'm a prominent Christian. And for you not to be in the tribe, like, first of all, it's embarrassing to me. And secondly, he said, you were so good at winning people over, telling good stories, bringing people in. He said, he said, it's, you know, I'm trying to keep this church thing going and and it's a loss. So he was disappointed. That's a very honest answer. Yeah, he's disappointed and he was hurt. But like right now, he and I are working on a book together because we continue to talk about not, it's not a debate book. It's a conversation book about like, so how do you deal with this? And what do you do with that? And why did you leave? And why do you stay? And it's just two people who deeply love each other talking about how their lives work. And we sort of feel like we know a lot of families that have this same dynamic and the conversation shuts down because they don't know how to talk about it. And so since we do know how to talk about it, we're trying to, we're trying to show that. Why do you think you're... Uh, these are not your words, these are my words. Why do you think you're better at having that conversation than a lot of parents I hear about? Because I get those emails a lot from people saying, you know, I, I can't tell my parents this, or I did come out to uh, them as non-religious and they've, they've shut me down. I mean, honestly, I, I, would, I would ascribe it mainly to my parents who throughout my life made it clear to me that they would rather have me be honest with them and have the relationship be authentic then then have me tell them what they want to hear. And so when I was telling you about all those transition points I made, 
we talked about all those. They, they weren't thrilled about any, a, a lot any of, of those <laughs> different trends. And some of them they were, some of them they yeah. weren't. My mom was a big gay marriage person. My dad went not so much. And mm-hmm. so when I was okay with gay marriage, my mom was like, I like you better now. <laughs> and my dad was like, ah, I'm really concerned how this is going to affect your, your overall ministry. But the point is, is that we kept talking all the way. And I think what happens with a lot of people is, is as they start to enter into that phase where they're doubting or where certain things are not lining up, they, they shut down. And they keep, they, they keep giving you the 1992 version of themselves, and it's 2000, and it's 2005, and 2000. And then when they finally crack, the parents are like, what? I thought, I, you know, yesterday you were 100% in, and, and now, now you're, you're 100% out. And, in, and, and, and whereas for, <laughs> in, in, my, in our world, there was always this conversation going on. And so since the conversation was ongoing on the, first, on the one side, the conversation keeps going on the other side. That's great. What do you do? So how many humanist chaplains are there nationwide? Golly, I, I mean, on university on campuses. On y- university campuses. I know of seven. Okay. Harvard, Yale, um, uh, American University, Columbia. Um, I know Stanford has Stanford. Uh, gosh, why am I? I'm so terrible about this. Um, yeah, but- yeah. Okay, so what do all of... Uh, this is a question I think a lot of people have, which is, all right, one, why do we need a humanist chaplain? And two, what do you do? What do you offer when you're... I mean, it's kind of like a counselor in a sense, but what does a humanist chaplain do? Yeah, I mean... I, th- it sounds like a paradox or no, oxymoron and, or something. Sure, yeah. but like when you think about it, like at, at our university, um, at USC, the dean of religious life says, look, in this context, religion is the pursuit of life's ultimate questions. Where do we come from? Where are we going? What happens when we die? Why are, we, why are some people good? Where, is, where did evil come from? All those big questions, right? And he says, look, anybody who's help, helping people answer those questions, that's, they're a religious leader. And so he, when he invited me to come to the campus as the humanist chaplain, he said, You're, he said I've got 90 different ministries, ministering to all the students who believe in supernatural realities. I've got Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Baha'i, Wiccan, like every kind of woo-woo, we've got somebody covering. (laughs) We've got 50 Christian ministries alone on the campus, okay? Yeah. He said, half of our campus doesn't believe in God, and there's nobody looking after those people's spiritual lives. And so you say, what what, what does that mean? Well, what it means is, you know, there are all these kids who would say, I don't believe in supernatural reality, but I want to make the most of my life and I want to be a good person and I want to make the world a better place. And I say, oh, I'm here to help you do that. We're going to run meetings where we're going to, where we're going to, we're going to inspire each other to love each other and to reach out to other people in love and to try to make their lives better. We're going to try to do missions trips. We're going to, we're going to bring people onto the campus to encourage people to use science in order to build better relationships. And when they say, why? You say, oh, because this life is all we have and we want to make the most of it. And we've all come to the conclusion together that the way to make the most of your life is not by maximizing your income or by using the most drugs or by having sex with as many partners as possible. It's by building loving relationships and doing meaningful work and reflecting on the wonder of just being alive in the first place and that's that's what we're about. We've come to that conclusion that that's the that that the, that's the best way to be happy, is to make other people happy. And they go, oh, 
I want to be part of that okay. group. Like, and, 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 and so a group like that. I can't remember having anything like that on no, my campus. I think, I think, I think a lot of people, I know a lot of people who say, I don't believe in God, but I still go to church because I want to be part of a community that, 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 that helps me to become a better person. And they're not going to leave that church even though that narrative doesn't make any sense to them, until somebody offers them a community where they can pursue goodness in an intentional and collective way on the basis of common sense. And that's, that's kind of the work that I do. And so, I mean, yeah, I counsel with people. I, I, you know, we put together meetings. You know, when somebody dies, I go to the funeral. Like, I'm, I'm a secular clergyman. Do you get along with the other chaplains, or do they feel like you're undermining what they do? No, interestingly enough, one of the reasons that they invited me to USC was they were, you know, is that, and by the way, when I say invited me to USC, I mean, I have a really good position at USC. I don't have a job there. The university doesn't pay me. This is not a university sponsored No, it can't be. Position. Because the university doesn't pay the Campus Crusade for Christ person. They don't pay the Muslim um, Right, those students. churches, those ministries pay those, the staffers. Exactly. Those religious communities say, like, the, the Jewish community gives a lot of money to Hillel House because they want them to keep their kids Jewish. Right. The Christians to keep their kids Christians. The problem for me is, the difficulty is, the secular community thinks like, well, we don't need anybody to keep our kids secular. Yeah. And the point is that my chaplaincy is not about getting kids to be secular. You don't have a tally mark in your office somewhere like, I've deconverted the following no, 30 people. No, on the contrary. It's about getting people who don't believe in God to be wonderful. It's about helping them to become the kind of people that, that, that transform lives through their goodness. So all of these humanist chaplaincies kind of work in the same way in that sense, I think, where they're funded by... They all are self-funded. And yeah. what are we talking, like one or two big donors or a bunch of small donors or maybe... My friend France? Jonathan Figderick at Stanford, he has like 10 Silicon Valley donors who give him... You know, he's trying to broaden that out. But, but that's, like, that's how he gets yeah. his salary. Greg it's... Epstein at, at, at Harvard, he has a much broader base of support because he's been there a lot longer and because it's Harvard. Yeah. And, and there's a tradition there of secular ministry. Yeah, they've had a humanist chaplain for a long time. Exactly. In my case, I'm in a rough spot, you know, because I, 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 a lot of people in Los Angeles don't even, like, they're like, what is a secular chaplain? What, what does that mean? What is campus ministry? I don't even like it that you use the word ministry. Right. Um, but once they understand it, they go, oh, my goodness. I wish there had been something like that when I was in college. And so the, it's a kind of like, well, then pay it forward. Help me to make this for students. Eventually, I, ho I won't need to raise money from outside people because as my students go out, because this is a transformative experience for them, they want to pay it forward. They too. want. They want. They're like, yeah, I want to keep that thing going. Now, when you ask me about how I get along with the other chaplains, when they brought me to USC, the way they did, the reason is is that they had had a lot of like the kind of the bad cop, the hardcore anti-theist people on their campus running around, and 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 they were like, we don't want that kind of hostility. That's that's negative space. That doesn't help anybody in, in, in an environment like this. So a guy like me. I mean, how could I be disrespectful to people who believe in God? I was a Christian minister for 30 years. I had sincere and wonderful transcendent you spiritual experience. I totally get that. And I understand why somebody wants to stay in that movement. And fr frankly, when a student comes to me who comes from a Christian family and, and has had a Christian life that's very meaningful to them, and their theology is broken, one of the things I do is assess how badly is it broken. Because if, if it's a minor fix... 
I'll, I'll help them fix it because I know how that works. I don't ride a Harley Davidson anymore, but I know how to fix one. <laughs> you know, I rode that for 30 years. And so sometimes I'll You say, mean you will help them with their Christianity? I'll help them with their Christianity because if their Christianity is a force in their life that causes them to be more loving and to have better relationships and that keeps them in connection with their family and, 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 and helps them become a force for good in the world, in many cases it's very traumatic to lose your faith to lose your community, to lose all that stuff. Because you're losing your mechanism to do all those things. And you say, what? but it's not true. You don't think it's true. And they know I don't think it's true either. In some sense, that's not the point. As Alain Dubouton once said, the most boring question you can ask about any religion is, is it true? The real question is, how does it function in a person's life? And so, yeah, I leave, like, I, so, so the other chaplains, they love me, on that level, the other also love me because sometimes they'll have a kid who's losing his faith and they know they can't do anything for that person. And hitherto, they were like, well, I guess we just turn them over to the fraternities and let them live debauched <laughs> lives. Or, you know, and all of a sudden they can go, listen, I know I, the reason I'm, I'm sad that you're leaving the faith, but you don't have to give up on all pursuing goodness and social justice as a way of life. Here's a, here's a fellowship for you. Is it fair to say all of you have the same goals, but just different ways of getting there? Or is, do you guys have different goals? You know, goals is an interesting word. I, I would say values is a, is a, is a really Do you have word. the same values? I think we share a lot of the same values. I mean, I think ultimately when I was a Christian, my motto was love God, love people, nothing else matters. And that was based on Jesus' great commandment, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second commandment is like unto the first, the same thing, love your neighbor as yourself. And I used to say like, oh, cl clearly the way to love God is by loving his children. And when you love your God's children, you're loving God. And that's the only thing that matters. Jesus said, upon these two things hang all the law and all the prophets. He's like, everything else is just an expert. It's all about loving people. We say like, so now you, you, you think that this life is all we have and that when we die... We're, we're, our, 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 our identities cease to exist. And I go like, yeah, what's your response to that? I go like, well, I want to make the most of this life. And the way to do that is, oh, weirdly enough, it all boils, comes back around to loving people yeah. and building relationships. And doing meaningful work boils down to making the world a better place for people to love each other. And so ultimately, we're, 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 we're a pack animal. We thrive in relationship. And so, yeah, so my values are built on a very different foundation. But they're not, they're not that, I'm not that different a guy than I was 10 years ago. Why do you think the military has had such a hard time adjusting to the idea of humanist chaplains? Because it seems like when they are on campuses, they work really well wherever they are. But the military says we don't want any humanist chaplains because they don't – every time they talk about it too, in, including politicians, they never seem to understand what it is they would offer. And it's like, no, soldiers who are in harm's way, uh, especially the bunch of them who are non-religious, they need that sort of support in a way no one else does. I don't know why it's such I, a hard fight. To I don't get know. There. I don't know. But here's something I, I, I think I would suspect. I suspect that one of the – and, and it's funny because it's not confined to military chaplaincy, but I suspect that chaplaincy in the military has a lot to do with dealing with death. And in a sense, the role of a chaplain in a military situation is to help people feel okay about dying and feel like, you know, to make sense of death. Does that make sense? Like, 
You're yeah. in a military setting. And they don't see what and, non-religious people could offer in that sense? And Exactly. And, and, and in many cases, I think they're, they're, they may not be far off because if there's one thing that I haven't seen the secular community do well, it's to help people face death. Okay, so let's talk about that because this is something I, I definitely wanted to talk to you about, which is what is the problem with the way we deal with it? Why can't we talk about death? This is one of the things churches offer people. Uh, they offer this idea of immortality. You're going to live forever. A very hopeful notion of after you die on this earth, you're going to go to the afterlife. You're going to go to heaven. You will always be around. You will never lose your loved ones in that sense. It's false hope, I think, but it's a very comforting idea. What do atheists have to offer? What do humanists have to offer in the way of death? You know, it's funny because Robert Ingersoll, who's like my great hero, like if there's any thinker that I have been shaped by, it's Robert Ingersoll, who's known as the great agnostic. Right. And, you know, was, was spe- the, the world's most popular public speaker in about 1890. Ingersoll said that the, the mistake that you make is thinking that religion created the idea of eternal life. He said the idea of eternal life happens every time a loved one dies. When you love somebody and they die, your most desperate and fervent wish is, I want to be with them again. I wish I could, we could have one more conversation. I wish. And so what happens is, is that the hope of immortality is just a natural function. That, 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 that hope emerges wherever love meets death. You're going to have the hope of immortality. Now, religion kind of codifies that and builds around it and says, sort of says, like, listen, I'm, I, want to, I want to speak to that hope. It's really true. This is how it works. This is how it's going to happen. But the hope for immortality is just there. It's a natural thing you're saying. What's, and, and it is natural. The weird thing about it is Ingersoll then goes on to say, but here's the one thing I'm sure of is if we actually lived forever, we would probably not love each other. That love is what happens in the, in the context of the urgency, the awareness that we have only a limited amount of time, we only have a finite amount of time, and because it's finite, it's precious. And because it's precious, we don't have any time to waste. I need to connect with you now because this is our moment. And if I had all the time in the world, he says, we would have no, we would have no urgency. So he says that death is what treads out the weeds between us. It's, it's what creates the path between us. It's something we all have in common, and it creates an urgency for connection. And so what he says is he says, it may be that love is a flower that only grows on the edge of the grave. That, that, that death is, it, it, without death, there would be no love, and without love, eternal life would be a curse. And basically every... Compels us to act now. It compels us to act now. And so you say, you know, you say, what I think has to, what I think happens is, is that we need to stop seeing death as the negation of life and see it as the catalyst for every good thing in life. Now, on a scientific level, it works exactly the same way. Single-celled organisms reproduce by um, splitting, and as a result, everything that an organism leads to live, that, that single-celled organism leads to live, it takes, like, when it reproduces, it's still got that left. So single-celled organisms with enough energy and food sources can be immortal 
theoretically. They, they, they never have splitting. to die. But what happens is when organisms be- start to c- become complex, what they do is they start having different parts of the organism do different functions. And as they become really complex, like you've got feet and they have nothing to do with reproduction. You've got hands and eyes. Even your brain has nothing to do with your reproduction. That's all in another part of your body. You're specialized out. Now, the good news about that complexity is, is that it makes the development of awareness possible. The bad news is, is that as soon as you, as soon as you have like a shell carrying your um, reproductive capability, what you have is you have the reality that that shell dies. And so you say, wait, are you saying that that death is the price of being aware of how wonderful life is? And I go like, yeah, you want immortality? You can have it. You want to be aware of, of, of love? You want to experience beauty? You want awe and wonder? You can have that. You just can't have them together. And so death is necessary. And that's even before we get to the idea that we live on a finite planet and that if you don't die and get out of the way, nobody else gets to experience the wonder of life. And so what happens is, is that you say, like, it's, life is this amazing thing. It's it, it, the wonder of it, the fact that you can see your own hand and that you don't even know how your eyes are working and you don't know how the electrical currents are working, but all this amazing stuff is happening. The wonder of life is this, it, it's like you've won the, it's so improbable too when you think about, you know. The, we the, won the cosmic lottery. Yeah, that's what they say, yeah. right? And, I, and there's a lot of truth to that. Like just the sheer improbability of you and I being here, yeah. conscious, alive, liking each other, connecting in the way that we are right now. It's so amazing. And I guess what I would say to you is, is it's like you won the cosmic lottery. It's, it's unseemly, isn't it? If, if somebody wins a million dollars and they stand around whining because it wasn't 10 million, <laughs> like here's the deal. I didn't exist for 13 billion years. And after I die, I, I won't exist for billions more. These 90 years or 70 years or whatever I get, this is my brief vacation from death, from non-existence, <laughs> it really is. And so the thing is, is that I I go on. I went on a vacation a couple of years. My family, a rich friend of ours, let us stay in his beach house in Hilton Head. Sweet. And we were there for two weeks, and it was like a mansion. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was, you know, and we were just loving it. Now, as the vacation wore on, when we got to about three or four days to go, it starts to set in. This is almost over. Now, I guess you could sit around for the next three days and go like. <laughs> That's not fair. Why don't we get to live here forever? This should, why does anyone else have this house? This is our, you could do that. But really the smart thing to do is to go, oh my gosh, we get to be here at all. Let's go to the beach. Let's eat the food. Let's drink it up. And then on the last day, if you're smart, you clean up the house. <laughs> because what you want to know is, is that the next family that comes in, you, you, you take pleasure and go like, they're going to have a great time here. I hope they have as much fun as we had. And you celebrate that you got it at all. And I just think like that's, like death is the, it, 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 it puts a bookend on this wonderful thing. But it's part of it. And, I, and, and so, you know, for me, I'm not afraid of being dead. I, I didn't exist for 13 billion years and it didn't bother me one little <laughs> bit. I don't think I will be bothered when I don't exist. Um, I worry about the transition a little bit. Sure. But the way I get through that in many ways is 
it's, it's, it's a little bit like when you ride a roller coaster or when you go to a good movie. Have you ever been to a really good movie? Sure. And you're coming out and, you're, and the crowd is buzzing. And then as you're walking out, you see the people lined up that are just about <laughs> ready to go in. And you sort of nod at them with a big smile and you go like, yeah, you, you're in for it. Oh, you're going to love this. And you take vicarious joy in, their, in, in what's coming for them. And I think that on some level, we don't deal with death very well because we haven't trained ourselves to take pleasure in other people's joy. So we should almost be mad at those Christians who die in big quotation marks and go up to heaven and come back to write a book all about what heaven was like. Cause it's like they're spoiling the movie and no one likes a spoiler. It's true. <laughs> and the other thing that, I mean, honestly, the worst thing about, about promising people immortality is that it undermines their sense of urgency to make the most of this life. It, it, it creates in them a false sense that somebody's coming to save us, that somebody's going to fix it, that, that you don't have to work for justice because justice will be taken care of. Who the, cares about the environment? The Who, yeah, and so the, the problem with immortality is, is that it tends to undermine the value of this life. It, it, if this life is precious because it's finite and you all of a sudden tell me it's infinite, you devalue my currency. And this life is the only currency that we have. And so I, I, that's, that's my biggest problem. I understand the, the desire when you're at, a, at, at somebody's funeral to say, we'll see him again, or he's not really dead. But I think that what we need to learn instead is to grieve well. And, and I, I think that's, that's the other part of learning to deal with death, is, is learning to, to, in a sense, to celebrate, to, to celebrate that that this person got to live it all. If you think in that cosmic lottery term that you brought up, to go like, Joe was so fortunate. Let's talk about all the things Joe did and saw and, and, to, and to teach ourselves and to teach our children that life is precious and, and we should celebrate Joe. We should honor Joe because he made the, he, because in this moment he made the most of it. In that moment he made the most of it. None of us make the most of it in every moment but we should be challenging one another to, 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 be, to take it more seriously and, and to drink it in more joyfully. And I think that sometimes when we're at a funeral and, and, and people start to talk about like what really mattered in a person's life, not their money, not their status, but their relationships and their love and, their, and the moments of transcendence in their lives, that in a sense, a good funeral inspires me to want to live a better life. A good funeral reminds me like, that I want to live in such a way that I have a good funeral. Um, and you say, but you won't be there. And I go, like, that's not the point. I want to live in such a way that my life inspires other people to get the most out of their lives. Here's, a, here's a, 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 something. I, and you say, why do you talk about death so much? Because I work with college students. And death is the elephant in the room for them. When they, are, when they give really? up. When At they, that young of an age. Absolutely. When they give up their non-belief. When they tell somebody they're a, a secularist or an atheist or an agnostic, the first question their Christian parents are going to say to them is, well, but what about death? What about eternal life? Aren't you, what about heaven? I want you to be in heaven. And they don't, if they don't have an answer to that question, they're not able to really make it, make it clear why seeing the world as a secular person can be liberating, can be freeing, can be challenging in a sense of it 
makes you want to be a better person. And so they need to think about death, but they think about it. They have friends who die in car accidents. They have parents who die. And their question is like, how do you, you know, like ultimately religion is obsessed with death. And you say, well, but you're not religious. And I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm wrapped up in life's ultimate questions. And death is the ultimate of ultimate questions. And so, yeah, I talk about this all the time. On a practical note then, so I love the beach house analogy, but if a college student loses a friend, someone who is young and who hasn't had a chance to live a full life, is there any way to comfort that person when they're not religious? Because you can't give them the platitudes religious people would give. It's devastating. And I mean, it, we just had, I just had a student whose best friend was killed in a car accident over spring break. And he came back and he came to my office and he said, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. And we talked about a lot of these things. And I said, like, look, Joey didn't get to experience 70 years or 80 years, but he got to live. Like, he wasn't a cockroach. He wasn't a protozoa. He wasn't a rock on Jupiter. He got to live, and you loved him. And you loved and he loved you. And, 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 and so it's not enough. We would always want more. But really, isn't it better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? Isn't it better to have lived and died than never to have lived at all? If that's true after 100 years, it's true after 10 years or five years or even one minute of suckling at your mother's breast and feeling those, the, the endorphins and the, and the oxytocin. And you say, like, wait, you're not serious about this, are you? And I go, like, I'm dead serious about this. I mean, the truth of the matter is, Hammond, if you told me right now, if you said, Bart, I'm going to take 20 years off your life. You're going to die next week instead of dying 20 years from now. But in exchange for that, there's a little boy who's going to grow up 100 years from now. And, and in exchange for your 20 years, I guarantee you the world will be such a place where he can run and play and then fall in love with a girl and have sex and get married and, and have babies and raise them and get old. Would you give 20 years of your life just for that? And the answer is, I would. I really would. And you say, well, why? You won't even be there to see it. You won't even exist. I know, but for the next week, the pleasure of knowing that somebody's going to get to experience all the wonderful stuff that I've experienced, that would be worth it to me. That would be worth it to me because I don't just love my life. I love the whole thing. I love life itself. Like I am committed to the concept. I have a religious, I have a spiritual devotion to life. And, and so once you start to think about it in those terms, in terms of what a privilege it is to be here, even when a young person dies, you recognize that they, that they were privileged. The thing that's the hardest for me, Hammond, is I've spent most of my life working in inner city ghettos. And when a young person dies who's known almost nothing but suffering, that is an outrage. And it is very difficult for me to deal with. And the only way I know how to deal with it is to recommit myself to trying to shape the world in such a place that it doesn't happen again. But like, there's, it's an unmitigated tragedy. And there's no amount of supernaturalism that can, that can wish that away. And there's no amount of secular perspective that makes that not horrible. Like, we live in a world, in a universe 
that is beautiful and amazing, but that is also cruel and unjust. That's the thing, like, the universe doesn't care. You care. I care. The universe produces creatures, has produced creatures that care. Bonobos care. Elephants care. You and I care. But the universe, it doesn't care. And so if there's going to be any justice or any love or any difference made in the world, it falls to us sentient creatures who are capable of love to make that happen. And death is a real good reminder that we'd better be, we'd better be busy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of the emails I get from some people who have not, uh, we talked about, you know, losing your best friend, but like parents who lose a child and, uh, parents who lose a baby at a young age sometimes. And it's, but I think one of the things I always hear from them is that that those few minutes they had with the child or the few years that they had and what it did for them as parents. I mean, those kids had an impact on their lives no matter how long they were here or something like that. And, and I want to believe that not only did those kids have an impact on their lives, but that they had an impact on those children's lives. That for that moment that child felt loved or felt connected in some way. You know, we used to talk about eternity a lot when I was a Christian. And gradually over time I realized that every fictional depiction of eternity, it was a curse. It was boring. It was like there was... Like no, playing harps in clouds, being in hell, whatever. Whatever it was, any, anything. Like, even like, or like in these books where the kid is always 19, the forever books, like it's, it's misery. Yeah. Like on some level, life is like a meal and you eat it. And when you're done, you're satisfied and you've had enough. I've, I've sat at the bedsides of a lot of old people who were ready to go. They were like, you know what? I've loved this life. I've enjoyed this life. But I've seen all I can see. Like, I've taken it all in, and I don't have the capacity to take in any more of it, and I'm ready to go. And so, you know, when, when life, but, but what I realized was is that eternity was not so much a quantity of life, but a quality. That there are these moments we have that get locked in, a moment where we really connect, the moment where we, where, where we fell in love or, or where we first saw our child and there's something happens and you go like, this moment, this moment has a quality, of, uh, an eternal quality to it. And you say, but, but that child will grow up and die and you'll die and everybody will die and everybody you know will die and everybody that was alive 200 years ago is not here. So, so it wasn't really eternal and yet in a sense, I think it gets frozen in for that person, because once you don't exist anymore, you're locked down. Nothing changes. And so I don't have a metaphysical explanation for it, but what I do know is this, is that, is that a baby, even if it dies, had a moment of connection, a moment of awareness, a moment of sensation. And most of us know that at the end of our lives, you watch people and they will scrap and fight and hang on as long as possible for just one more of those things because they're precious. And so whether it's your first moment of consciousness or your last moment of consciousness, they are infinitely valuable because they are so precious. And so when parents come to me and talk to me about their children, I want to focus them on 
the, the reality that their child's life was not wasted or empty or without meaning. And I wanted them to focus on the fact that their grief is a part of loving that child and an intrinsic part of it. And then I, I want to ask them a question. Would you rather not have ever loved that child? And invariably they'll say, no, I wouldn't. And then I go like, then this is the hard part of the bargain. But it was a good bargain. Life is a good bargain, even, even though it comes at a cost. And so, you know, I, I sometimes think that religious fantasies that try to convince you that you can have love without paying a price for it cheapen the whole reality. The reality is that life is wonderful, literally full of wonder. That's my, my podcast, which nobody <laughs> listens to. Your podcast, everyone listens to. Nobody listens to my podcast, but it's called The Wonderful Podcast. And I call it that because life is full of wonder, full of wonder. If, if we attune ourselves to listening for it, if, if, we, if, if we sensitize ourselves to feeling it, if we, if we become aware of it, and in a real sense, death is our friend in that endeavor. That's really amazing. It's, it's a type of conversation I am so not used to hearing within our movement, in, just in general, because I've heard a lot of atheists talk, I've read a lot of books by atheists, and this is one of the subjects that we are, as a collective... Weak. Weak. Yeah. <laughs> Very. You know, you, you, I tell a lot of stories, and you say, well, of course you do. You were an evangelical minister <laughs> for 30 years. That's what you guys do. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is that the reason I tell stories is because stories connect with people in a way that I, just ideas or facts or, re, or reasoned arguments don't. And one of the things I'm convinced of is, is that we need to start learning to tell stories that illustrate the meaning of life to people. And, and the secular community typically is afraid of storytelling because it's anecdotes. Because <laughs> it's anecdotes, but also because they go, Bart, you're manipulating people's emotions. And we wanna we wanna we wanna get we we, we don't we don't wanna trust emotions. We're we're all about reason. And the truth of the matter is is that most people don't make decisions on the basis of reason. They use reason to justify decisions that they've made in another part of their part of their body. Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind. That's what it's all about. It's like, look, moral decision-making isn't made in the reason. You make your moral decisions on a gut level, and then you... You, you it, find a reason to justify exactly. it. Exactly. So, so your, your gut is the elephant, and your reason is the rider, and it acts, like it's, it acts like it's steering, but it's really just along for the ride. And what I, what I would suggest is, is that if, you don't learn, if we don't learn to speak to people's emotional center, if we don't learn to move people emotionally we're not going to be able to help them live better lives. And he said, like, but wait a second. I mean, there, there could be so much, you know, like people don't want to be emotionally manipulated. And I go, like, really? Then why do they go to the movies? Then why do they get on roller coasters? Why do we read books? People sign up to feel. They sign up. They're like, please, I, know, I, I need to feel something 
can you help me? I'll pay you $50 if you can move me, you two. Um, and, and, so, and we talked about how people go to psychics even. Uh, the people who have crossed over, they want a chance to talk to them because they want that connection. And they, people want to feel something. They want to connect. And, they want, and, so, and so in a real sense, I'm, I'm really convinced that secular, if secularity is just a better way of thinking... It's never, it, it's, it'll never be a movement. A movement is always about a better way of life, and a better way of life is always about moving people towards happiness. And one of the things that we need to understand is that there's some issues where we kind of cede the ground to the religious because they've been, when it, for death, for example, they know how to help people feel better for wrong reasons, but they know how to do it. And we, we so often kind of give them you that know, opportunity you know, and we shouldn't have to no, no, because the, we can talk about this stuff and we have a way of thinking about it that makes sense. And on the contrary, Hammond, they don't like religious people are very loving and some of those platitudes can be helpful sometimes. Right. But I got to tell you something. If you believe in an all loving and all knowing and all powerful God and your six year old gets run over by a car, that is not comforting. It is not comforting to believe that God orchestrated that or allowed that to happen. One of the things that drove me out of being a Christian, that made one of the death, one of the thousand cuts for me was, is I would see tragedies that were just bad. And I felt myself in a position where I had to be an apologist for God and explain how this horrible, terrible thing wasn't really horrible and terrible because somehow it was part of this larger plan or because somehow this person would be off in heaven. And of course, I was thinking to myself, if it's so wonderful to be off in heaven, why are we not all committing mass suicide? Nobody really buys that. And so the difficulty that I had was you say, well, we seed the ground because they have comforting things to say. And the truth of the matter is, is that death is frightening. And those things aren't necessarily that comforting, the, the religious things. But here's the thing that they do have, Hammond. They know what to say. They have a shared narrative that tells them what death means and what happens after you die. And so in that moment of complete confusion and terror and turmoil, they come to you and they know what they're supposed to say to you. And the problem with most atheists... And the problem with most agnostics and the problem with most free thinkers I know is, is that in those moments of tragedy, they haven't thought through what to say. They're just secular enough to make themselves miserable. They're secular enough to get rid of God, but they're not secular enough to, to sort out what makes life meaningful. And because they haven't done that, in that moment, they have nothing to say. And so you say, why do Christians show up at somebody's house with a casserole and secular people don't, because I don't want to show up with a casserole and be in this moment where I've got nothing to say, where I am helpless before your grief. And you say, well, gosh, then we need to arm people with, yeah, we need to arm people with stuff like we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes so that when they show up, they can grieve and they can help people grieve and they can give them hopeful thoughts, comforting thoughts, meaningful thoughts, perspective. Honesty. Honest perspective. But to say, like, listen, let's look at this carefully. This is a horrible, sad moment. But let's look at this carefully. Isn't, on the whole, Sally's life a good thing? 
Can we, can we stop here? And even as we're sad that it's over, can we say this was a great vacation? And, and, and if we can't, if we can't give people perspective, then we're doomed to want to stay away from them at all the moments when they most need community. I mean, you, you guys, you bloggers, you know, all your online stuff, and, 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 you know, we all know that in those crucial moments, an email doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. A Facebook post doesn't help that much. The online, you know, at some point you need a human being, a breathing person sitting in the room with you, sitting Shiva, if you will, and saying, like, let's go through this together. And it's impossible for us to handle being with each other if we don't have a narrative and a context that enables us to make sense of it. It's powerful. Yeah, yeah. you know what? It's, it's sad. I, 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 can I just be really honest Please. with you? I mean, you can cut this out of the podcast, but can I be really honest with you? So I called my wife last night because um, I, uh, I'm, I'm here at this conference talking with all these people about this stuff, meaning and value and purpose, and how do we build a community that, that where, we, where people are drawn into a, a, an atmosphere where they, can, where they can be transformed by love and where they can go out and transform the world in another place based on pure reason, based on pure common sense with no supernatural woo-woo. And I had this wonderful day, I had these wonderful conversations, and I went back to the room and I had to apply online for a job, uh, a paying job, because I can't make a living as a secular clergyman, um, because I don't know how to raise any money. And my wife called me and she said, I'm as depressed as I've ever been, because she said, I think what you're doing is so important talking to people about giving people these ideas and helping people to make, to figure out humanism as a, as a way of life, not just as a way of thinking. And she said, I hate the idea that you're going to spend eight hours doing something else so that you can do that in your spare time. And, and I got to tell you that every time I have a conversation like this, I get, I get emotional and I go like, this is the stuff that people come to me and say, I've been waiting for this. I need this. This is the, your help. This is, what we, this is what's making my life work in a different way. And, it, it, you know, and the truth of the matter is, is that the one thing that I really miss about being a Christian is I miss being a part of a community that places enough value on inspiration and on pastoral care that they'll pay somebody to offer it who's good at it. And it, 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 it hurts me to realize that I'm not in, yet in a position where I can be a full-time minister because I really love, <laughs> I really love moving people in the direction of joyful happiness. If uh, people want to support the chaplaincy at USC, at UCLA, what should they do? You know what? They could go to my website, bartcampolo.org. Um, and they could, there's a place there where, where there's a direct link to the humanist chaplaincy of Los Angeles and, and, and people can give to that. Um, that, that's probably the best thing that they could do. Yeah. Is, is just go there. And, and I mean, I didn't mean to turn this into a, Oh, pitch. I know I, I'm, I'm doing yeah. that because I agree with you. This is, uh, it's, it's sad that we don't place this value and it's sad that people, uh, so often, every time I post about a humanist chaplain doing anything, the comment thread inevitably turns to like, wow, why do we need this? It's like, no, there's a really good reason we need this. And until you've talked to someone who's in that position, or unless you've needed someone in that position, it's not easy to kind of explain what 
humanist chaplains have to offer that is so important. You know, you're right. And you know, what's interesting is the other half of what I do that's important, I guess the best way I would describe it is uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson meets Carl Sagan in the sense of we have a narrative. Like, Ursula Goodenough once said, uh, in the sacred depths of nature, she was a great secular biologist, and she said, every religion has a cosmos and an ethos, a story of where we come from and where we're going and why there's evil and why there's good and where life comes from, and a story uh, and, and an ethos that says, on the basis of that story, because that's true, you should do this. And she said, we secular people have the greatest narrative of them all, the, the epic of evolution. And she said, ultimately, if you told it right, it would inspire a religious devotion to life. It would, it would inspire people to be willing to sacrifice to, 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 to make the world a better place and to love one another and to do things. And she said, the problem with us secularists is we have the best narrative in the world and we haven't learned how to tell it in an inspirational way. And I think that that's like, if, if, if somebody says to me, why do we need them? And what I would say is, if you look at the way we're handling climate change, if you look at the way we're handling poverty, if you look at the way we're handling violence and our sexism, any, any number of things, what I would say is, it's very clear to me that we haven't yet learned to tell the story, the true story of life well enough that it inspires people to respond. And if you look at even the, the gay rights movement and stuff, why has that changed so rapidly, even within religious groups? Uh, it's not because of necessarily logical arguments that people made. It's, it's because we all know gay people. It's relationships. And it's like, well, you know, I'm against gay people, but, but my friend over here is awesome. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, that guy deserves rights too. Yeah. And religious people get that. And when you know somebody and when you have a, like you're saying, this compelling reason to care about these issues, yeah, it becomes a no-brainer all yeah, of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I don't want to win people into a better way of, li- a better way of thinking. I want to win people into a better way of life. Like, I want, to, I want us to have zeal, if you will. You say, ooh, that's a religious word. Yeah. How about evangelical zeal? <laughs> and you say, like, evangel- what are you talking about? Well, the question is, if, if, if the community you're a part of and this approach you have to making the most of your life, if it's made your life better, then that's good news. And if, and if you're one of your core understandings is, is that your happiness is all wrapped up in making other people happy, then you go like, well, what would be the best way I could make other people happy? And that would be to draw them into this same way of thinking and the same way of life that's, that, that's doing something for you. And you go like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're saying this kind of stuff. Like, I'm going to get letters and emails <laughs> saying, get this guy out of here. But the truth of the matter is, is that the secular movement keeps looking at, each, at, at itself and saying, why, aren't, why don't we have more people? We, we have the best story of them all. Why are we not drawing people? Why are we not changing the world? Why are we not impacting the culture the way we should? And the answer isn't because we don't have a good enough story. It's because we haven't learned how to tell it. And the answer isn't because we don't have a good enough way of life. It's that we don't understand that people don't adopt a new way of life on the basis of reason and argument. They adopt it when they're in the context of a relationship, when somebody comes to them and makes it real and makes it viable and makes it possible. And so 
We've got to become better lovers. And we've got to become better inspirers. And we've got to become better at focusing people on the ultimate wonder of the universe, which is life itself. Awesome. Gosh, that sort of sounds like an ending, doesn't it? It kind of does. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, man. Thank, thanks. You know what? Can, can I just like, yeah, I know your, your listeners already love you, so I don't need to get, I don't need to get, <laughs> not you a, according to my email. <laughs> okay. I don't need to get, I don't need to give you a shout out, but what I will tell you is this, is that over and over again, I meet people who say the friendly atheist was the first time I realized that there might be, that, that, that there might be a way for me to not believe in God in a, in a joyful way. And so, like, I really believe that what you're doing is very similar to what I'm doing. And that is that you're, you're not just trying to do a good PR job so that the rest of the world thinks atheists are, are better, but rather you're, you're doing a great education job in terms of showing people that don't believe in God, that there's a way of going, that there's a way of not believing in God that is full of meaning and full of energy and full of vitality. And I just, I'm a, like, you know, I, I, I guess, like, I'm a Thank fan. You, by the way. I'm a fan that. because what you're doing matters. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So thanks. All right. <laughs> um, I will have uh, notes, links to everything we talked about in the show notes for this. But really quickly, where can people find you at? BartCampolo.org. Awesome. Thank you so much. You bet. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.